Last Labor Day, things got crazy around the Perstrope house. We had gone to Julie's family for Saturday of Labor Day, and after having lunch with them on Saturday and, and hanging out for the day, Sunday night, Julie's dad calls and says, I'm starting to run a fever, I'm starting to show some cold symptoms, and I just went and had a COVID test. Well, I got called on Tuesday from uh, the state health department that said that I was quarantined because I was sitting right next to my father-in-law at the table on Saturday. And, but I felt fine and was fine sitting right next to him. I was fine. But about three days later, Micah and Luke started to show COVID symptoms. And then by the weekend, Joel started to show COVID symptoms And then in the middle of the next week, Josh started to show, and Josh was under 18, so I had to take him to the doctor for his COVID test, and about three days later, then I had COVID. And then two days later, Julie got COVID, and then to finish out all of us, Melanie, our daughter-in-law, got it. It was one of these things where you didn't even realize you were contagious, but you infected somebody else. The truth of the matter is, I wonder, I wonder about our faith, our walk, our love, our hope in the Lord, our our Christianity. Are people around us being impacted or infected by a contagious faith? Or do we have a contagious faith? Do the people around us truly know that there's something different in our life because someone is in our life? For the believers in Thessalonica, they experienced a dramatic change when they came to know Jesus. And that change was evident and contagious to those that were around them. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse number 2 and read down through verse number 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse number 2 says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And with that, let's pray. God, would you speak to us today and move in our hearts, challenge us to to have a contagious faith, to truly live the gospel. In your name, amen. In Acts chapter 17, we find when Paul swept into Thessalonica, he was only there for three Sabbaths. They're reasoning in the synagogue, and then a, uh, a group of mobs started a riot and ran Paul out of town. 
And he wanted to check on the church at Thessalonica how they were doing. So he had sent Timothy to go check on them. Timothy has now returned to Paul. And this is just a few months after Paul had visited Thessalonica. He writes a letter back to them. And as he writes this letter back to them, he is pleased to hear about Timothy's report how God is working in their life. And though he was only there a short time, and though they had received the gospel and were facing affliction and persecution, they were persevering in their faith. And so Paul writes to encourage them in their faith, to instruct them, and then he wanted to reconnect with them again. And as Paul writes to them, we find in verse number three in particular, he points out their work of faith their labor of love and their patience of hope. Paul is recognizing that this church is living differently than they used to. I find it interesting, just as a side note in verse number two, Paul says that he uh, is thankful for them, making mention of them in his prayers. I like the thought of making mention especially when you start to look at a church and a, the, the size of a, of, a, of a church, you know, you just can't sit down and pray for everybody for an hour. So Paul says, look, I'm making mention of you. And I don't know about you, but anytime you want to make mention of me in your prayers, I would very much appreciate that. Making mention. I, I just am lifting them just in, in, in a moment before the Lord, making mention of you in our prayers. And I see your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. But lest you think that this is a perfect church as we talk about the church at Thessalonica, I I have to challenge you just to say, this church was not a perfect church. As we move into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe that Paul has to kind of defend himself and his motives in ministry. Quite possibly because there may be some in the church that are saying, what was he doing and what were his motives? So Paul defends his motives in chapter 2. In chapter 4, there's immorality that he addresses in the first eight verses of chapter 4. I I, I don't think that he's just bringing up a needless topic here, but he's addressing a sin issue. These folks have been rescued out of a very immoral, idolatrous background, and so he's making mention of this and saying, this is God's will that you abstain from immorality. And then in chapter 4, verse number 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep in Jesus and grieve as those who have no hope. This church was was not everything. It, It was not perfect. Matter of fact, there aren't any perfect ones. If they were perfect, then you or I couldn't be part of it. Especially the I on that. But Paul writes this church, and they're in the process of change. They're in the process of growth. They're coming to understand the truth of Christ and walking closer to him. And Paul commends them in these three areas of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. You see the three, the three words that obviously stick out. There's faith, there's love, and there's hope. Paul uses those three many times in Scripture. Probably most famous is at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says that these three abide, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. 
So Paul uses these three together many times, and he's going to team them together and say, look, I remember this about you, and I commend this to you, and for us, it's a challenge for us to walk in. So slide with me back to verse number three and, and look at this as he writes. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. So there's a challenge for us. Exhibit a faith that works. Their faith produced works. Now, as we think about faith, we understand that there is a trust in God. There's a belief in him and there's a trust to walk faithful to the cause that he has, has presented us to. Uh, before us, but as we think about genuine faith, how does that really show itself in a person's life? Let me give you three thoughts on that. First off, genuine faith believes for salvation. Genuine faith believes for salvation. That, that the only way that we're truly saved is through faith. Matter of fact, in John 6, 29, on your worship guide, this is the work of God. That you believe in him, believe in Jesus whom God has sent. There were many Jews in that day and Jews in Thessalonica who thought, you know what, I'm going to follow the rules, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to be good, I'm going to do that. There are people today that are spread out throughout congregations throughout the whole wide world that they think by going to church, by being good, by giving money, by participating in this, by doing that, it all rests on me. I've got to do something. And it's it's turned around. It says, no, 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 no. It's not work that we do. The work that we need to settle on is believing. So that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 would say this. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. So genuine faith is going to believe for salvation because We can't work enough, do enough, give enough, be good enough to get to heaven on our own. It's faith that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sin, and rose again from the dead. Remember in Acts chapter 17, what they did is they opened the Bible, the Old Testament, and they reasoned how Christ had to suffer and how he had to rise from the dead. Remember what they had just said in Philippi in Acts 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Genuine faith believes for salvation. But then notice what he says in this verse. He says, I remember your work of faith. So that genuine faith, once it comes to a place of believing, there is the sense that genuine faith then works for the Lord. Genuine faith serves the Lord. Now, we're not saved by our works, but when we come to a genuine faith, we want a faith that works. James illustrates it this way in James chapter 2. He says, I want you to, to imagine, to picture in your mind, a man or a woman who comes to you and they are, 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 they don't have any clothes. They're naked and they are destitute. They don't have anything. They're poor. They're hungry. And you say to them, be warmed and filled. Go on your way. He says, is that faith? Is that works that comes from a life of faith? He says, no, faith without works is dead. So that when you see someone who is in need, you see a place to fit into the kingdom, you work not to get to heaven, but because we've already experienced the work of Christ in our life. 
we work for the Lord. Their work of faith. They were laboring in faith because the Lord had worked in their life. And as we think about this picture of service just for a minute, let's picture the life of Jesus himself. In Matthew 20, 28, what did Jesus say? For the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Working. A faith that serves. A faith that meets needs. Not to get to heaven, but because we've already received the precious gift of eternal life, we want to work to help others get there and encourage people along the way. Then, as we think about faith, it not only believes for salvation and, and, and serves or works for the Lord, but genuine faith pleases God. Do, do you realize in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, it says in verse number six, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. That faith is that, that, that doorway that we have. And as we walk through that, we can come to a place of pleasing God. In 1853, the World's Fair was held in New York City. And there was a man named Elisha Otis who uh, had been experimenting with elevators. And one of the things that he had been experimenting with elevators was on, was on an elevator break. So on that day in 1853, in the building that they had constructed, which they called the Crystal Palace, they lifted Elisha Otis all up high enough where everyone in the building could see. And then he brought what he called his axe man. The axe man cut the rope that his suspended elevator was hanging on. And as the axe man cut the rope, the elevator fell a couple feet and then his brake caught. I don't know if you've ever been in an elevator, an Otis elevator, named after Elisha Otis. I used to live uh, in Olive Branch, or Horn Lake, Mississippi, and, and Dover Elevator was there. So I'm always interested. I go into an elevator. Uh, I, I always look and see what, what brand it is, all right? Just in, interest to me. I know nothing about them except that in Horn Lake they had a tower that they, I guess, tested elevators on. But I always look, Otis Elevators. You know what he did? He said, I have so much faith in my product, I'm willing for somebody to cut the rope. I wonder, do we have enough faith in God to say, Lord, I'll step onto the platform of whatever you have for me. I'll step up to the plate wherever you would have me to go. I'll walk wherever you want. And even if the axe man cuts that rope, I know whose hands I ultimately rest in. They had and exhibited a faith that works. But notice in verse number three, not only is there a faith that works, but notice what he says. He says this in verse number three, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your labor of, of love, so that we should exemplify, exemplify a love that, that serves, that, that works as well. He says that you have a labor of, 
of love, that you are exemplifying loving service in your life, a love that serves. So the truth of it is this, what prompts us to love or who prompts us to love? The, the picture is, is that, that we have this, this love that begins in our life and then puts us to work so that we're laboring and this labor is inspired and produced by the love that we have. The truth of it is that God's love prompts me to love. And first, God love, God's love prompts me to love him. God's love prompts me to love God. Who am I to love? My labor of love? First off, I love God. So that is God is working in my life and God is prompting and God is moving. Then what happens? God's love causes me to love him. First John four nineteen tells us that we love him because he first loved us. So we love him. The great commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So we love God first. But not only do we love God, look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 12. God's love prompts me to love God, but then God's love prompts me to love believers. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. So God's love prompts me to love him because that's where the love came from to begin with. That's the great command. But then 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, Paul is praying that they would increase and abound in love to one another so that we love each other. We love as part of the faith that we're loving. That's a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so we are loving. So we love God, we love others. But, but notice at the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. And then notice those last three words. And to all. We, we don't only love God and love each other. It should be easy for us to love God and love each other. But we're to love those that are in the world. We're to love those that are outside of the church. We're to love all people. Now, now catch this, because this is really important. Jesus would say that, that the way that people are going to know that you're my disciples is the love that you have for one another but Paul is saying this love is just going to go beyond one another. This love is going to spread to all. And we don't love people because they're good. Because there's some people in the world that they're not doing what is good or right or righteous or just. There are those today that... God gives them the very breath in their lungs and they take that breath and they curse him. And Paul reminds us that our love is to abound and increase to one another and to all. 
Because every man and woman is made in the image of God, and they are worthy of our respect and the kindness of our love because of God's image in them. So that person that disagrees with you or that person that writes something that's argumentative on Facebook and, and, and then you double down and, and you, they, 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 have, they have thrown a shovel full and then you back up the dump truck and, and you just pile on. I wonder, you may have won the battle. But what about the war for their soul? Have you thought about the ramification of their life in eternity? And have you thought about the fact that this person is made in the image of God? Think about this just for a moment. This, this love, God's love prompts me to love, but he says it's a labor of love. So God's love not only prompts me to love, but God's love prompts me to serve. That's really the, the heartbeat here, that God's love is going to prompt me to serve others. Again, Jesus said, look, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve Do you remember John chapter 13, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples? The end of verse number one in John 13, Jesus, it says that, and Jesus loved them till the end. I I love that comment because the disciples had a lot of reasons not to love them, but Jesus loved them to the end. And then we see that awesome moment in the upper room where Jesus takes off the robe and he puts on the towel and he grabs the basin and he washes their feet. What happened? Love served. The Son of God washing the filthy feet of humanity. Love served. And Jesus then turns to his disciples in John 13, 34 and says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? through his service, his humility, and ultimately, that would take him to the cross. That's how much he loved. Take another example in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, Peter has denied the Lord three times. Remember that? And the rooster crowed, and and then the resurrection has happened, and, and in John 21, Peter says, man, I'm going fishing. And I don't think he's saying, hey, I'm going to go take a weekend off and I'm going to relax and fish for a little bit. I really think that Peter's like, dude, man, this is sunk in now. I mean, I've seen the resurrected Lord, but I realized I failed him miserably. And I don't really, maybe I shouldn't even be a disciple anymore. I mean, maybe I should just take a back seat and, and, and not press anymore. Maybe I should just go back to being a fisherman. So, who shows up? Jesus does. They're out in the boat. Jesus is on the bank. And Jesus has the disciples come to him. And Jesus asked the question, Simon, do you love me? How many times did he ask the question? You remember? Three times. That's right. Peter had denied Jesus three times. And three times he asked him, do you love me? But it's interesting what Jesus then said. Do you remember? He said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? 
Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times when the Lord talked to him about showing and affirming his love toward Jesus, do you know what Jesus did? He said, then go to work. Do you love me? Go to work. Make a difference in people's lives. Take care of them like a shepherd. Tend them. Feed them. I'll be honest with you. This truth just really, I mean, mustered in my life when I was on my sabbatical. I have read this passage hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, honestly. But the truth of Jesus affirming love and putting Peter to service are so intricately tied here that I think in my mind, wow, Lord, you just drove that home in a very new and fresh way to me. One of the ways that I can serve and love is by serving and loving others. Think about it. Exemplify a love that serves. Thirdly, as we look at this passage, he mentions their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Notice notice what it says there at the end of, uh, middle of verse three, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of God, our Father. Express a hope that endures. Express a hope that endures. When, when we think about our life, we need to come to a place where, man, my hope is being expressed in my life in such a way that people see I have something different than the world. Your patience, your endurance of hope, an enduring hope, a hope that don't quit, a hope that holds on, a hope that perseveres, despite the odds, despite the circumstances, because we know the Lord. It's not about what we have and this, this good thoughts that we can, can relish on in our life. No, it's all about the Lord. Now, quickly notice with me, as we think about this, their, their patience of hope, there is a sense in which we live with hope in the present. We live with hope in the present. We recognize, look at God, God holds us in his hand. His presence is always with us. We can get on the elevator. He has control. We have hope no matter what. No matter what the odds, no matter what anything looks like in life. We have hope in life because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And the Lord has promised I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he has promised us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. So we have hope no matter what anyone says, no matter what's going on, we express hope in life. But we not only have hope in life in the present, but we have and are to live with this sense of hope in the future. We have hope in the future. Jesus made three great promises before before he went to the cross. Three great promises. The first one is this in Matthew 16, 18. He promised that he was going to build his church. Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of the church. 
In John chapter 14 and verse number 16, Jesus promised, I will send the Holy Spirit. And guess what? The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. But there's one other great promise that is yet to be fully fulfilled. In John 14, 3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The three great promises, Jesus said, I'll build my church, I will send the Spirit, and I will come again. And Paul constantly hits on this at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, into chapter 2 in verse 19, 3 around verse 13, 4 verses 16 and 17, 5, 23, we find this constant reminder Jesus is coming. And he even said in Revelation chapter 22, three times, behold, I am coming quickly. Jesus is coming. That's our hope for the future. That either we will die and go to live with him or he will come again and we will experience him in a way we've never seen and never felt and maybe even never pictured. And it may not have even worked out according to all of our charts that we have on the end times, but we know Jesus is coming again. That's what we know for sure. So we have hope in the future. You say, man, I, I, I need some faith like that. I need some love like that. I need some hope like that. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 3. Notice what he says at the end of that verse. Your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope. Now notice those words. In our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's, here's something that we just have to, to look. Faith, love, and hope are in Christ. This is not something I have to work up. This is something that Christ works in me. The world can't experience faith, love, and hope like this. They can't because this is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But not only that, ladies and gentlemen, there's more. Notice what it says at the very end that we are to demonstrate this labor of love, this, this, uh, this work of faith, this labor of love, this patience of hope, which comes in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what it says. In the sight of our God and Father. You say, well, one time I took this big step of faith and nobody saw it, and nobody congratulated me for it. It was in the sight of God. He didn't miss it. One time I served, and I did something really sacrificial. I gave of my time, my effort, my energy, my money, and no one came and patted me on the back and said, good job. God didn't miss it. That act of laboring in love was in the sight of our God and Father. There was this time when life got really dark and I got before the Lord and I found hope. And no one, no one really even knows. Can I tell you? 
that faith, love, and hope in Christ Jesus are in the sight of our God and Father. In 1981, a millionaire named Eugene Lang was speaking a sixth grade commencement service at an elementary school in Harlem. And he looked out at these kids and without forethought, he promised these kids, if you finish high school, I'll help you get through college. They had a fresh hope. Numbers say 80 to 90% of this school where many students were dropping out went on to finish high school. And many of them went on to finish college. They worked. They believed. They persevered. They had hope. Can I tell you? One day you'll stand before the Lord in your ultimate graduation service where you will graduate from earth to heaven. But until then, Work in faith, labor in love, endure in hope, because we have the ultimate one who brings hope. If you don't know Jesus today, can I tell you, you'll never, you'll never experience the depth of love or the opportunity of hope that only comes through a relationship with him. So that as Paul went in to share with the church at Thessalonica, he shared the message that Jesus died and suffered for our sins and rose from the dead. And many of them were persuaded to believe and trust Jesus alone. Some of you today, maybe you need that persuasion that says, I'm not going to stand on my church denomination or on my good works or on my giving or on my church attendance or by the things that I do, but I need to trust Jesus alone as the only way of salvation. And when he comes into my life, he begins to build a sense of faith, love, hope that only comes in Christ Jesus. And if you don't know that today, you're missing out on life's and eternity's greatest gift and greatest blessing. For those of us who have experienced that, We have to ask ourselves the question, am I like a Thessalonian believer, working in faith, laboring in love, enduring in hope, persevering until Jesus comes?